Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today we're going to talk to Barry Boothman about a very particular kind of business history, the history of a failure of a company, Abby Tibby Power and Paper, and the failure of the newsprint industry in general. Until recently, Barry Boothman was a professor of strategic management at the University of New Brunswick with a long interest in business history. His book, Corporate Cataclysm, Abby Tibby, Power and Paper in the Collapse of the Newsprint Industry, 1912-1946, received the Ontario Historical Society Award for the Best Book in Regional History in Ontario. Published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020, Corporate Cataclysm is an insightful history and comprehensive analysis of a notable Canadian business failure. Barry joins us from his home in Font Hill, Ontario, near the orchards and vineyards just south of St. Catharines. Barry, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. pages. This is, as I've said already, a very detailed and I must say comprehensively researched history of not only a company, but an industry. So what drove you to spend so many years on this subject? The work for this really began in the early 1990s. And I never intended to have a book on Abitibi uh, as one of the end products. I was working on a overview study of the emergence of, of big business in Canada, particularly trying to compile who were the largest corporations in Canada going from 1916 to 1988. Well, the single biggest cluster turned beginning in 1930 were the pulp and paper companies. Yet there was surprisingly little research done on them, especially from a business or economic perspective. Uh, there, were, there were a variety of histories related to it, but ironically, most of the work was dealing with the logging industry back in the 19th century. So I suddenly found I had a wide open territory to look at. Uh, this then tied into what I was doing as a business professor. I taught strategy international business and corporate governance uh, and had built up a profile already on working on companies that went bankrupt or had to be reorganized. Well, you state that much more can be learned from failure than from success. Can you explain what you mean by this in the context of either business history, where the tendency has been to focus on success, uh, or from general history uh, in which we tend to focus on those things which succeed more generally in life? Well, that's precisely why I got interested in, in, in looking at failure. Most business histories want to talk about progressive things, the innovations, the new developments, uh, how companies advance. But there's a harsh reality that goes with modern capitalism. It's also destructive. If you took the top 100 non-financial companies in Canada in 1930, by 1988, only a fifth of them are still around. If we start in 1988 and go through, say, to about 2013, only about a fifth of them 
are still among the leading companies in the, in the country. There's a very heavy turnover. For any of your viewers who are older citizens like me, think back to all the companies and products you used to deal with that aren't around anymore. Uh, failure also, from an academic perspective, is a lot more fun to study. Uh, when we go out to see a film, we're out to see, it's often to see the villain. We're out to see Vader, not necessarily Luke Skywalker. I don't have to deal with executives telling me how wonderful they are, how brilliant their leadership skills are. Uh, instead, I get to pour through and figure out the detailed problems of what le led to a collapse, where it was genuine management error, as opposed to industry developments, competitor maneuvers, uh, and the like. This also goes back to much of the stuff I did as a doctoral student many years ago. I was exposed uh, in my, one of my minors was organizational behavior, and I was exposed to a literature that particularly went into things like how people learn, which is often negative conditioning. We keep doing the same things until we learn otherwise or how companies and people escalate into failing courses of action. And even when things are going wrong, they keep pouring resources, people, money in, into the action, hoping to turn it around. One only has to think of the American wars in Vietnam and Afghanistan to see, see a comparison. Uh, needless to say, this often goes on with companies as well. Uh, also, much of my work as an academic is not formulated the same way it's usually presented in business textbooks. That is, strategy is a carefully thought through plan and scheme. The there's, a, there's a minority stream in, in, in strategic management, to which I belong, that looks at strategy as theory and myth, namely what we think we're doing, what we think we're accomplishing, which may or may not be realistic and match up with what's going on. So one of the things that I learned very early on in reading your book was that there's a big difference between the production of pulp on the one hand and the manufacture of newsprint on the other. Um, with that in mind, can you give us a, a short overview of the state of the pulp industry in Ontario, and if you can, perhaps Canada as a whole, in the period from the early 1900s until the Great Depression of the 1930s. And, and then after that, what propelled a few pulp companies to vertically integrate into the manufacturing of newsprint from straight pulp? The emergence of the pulp and paper industry, we have to think of it the same way we would do about tech industries today. Namely, it was a new industry. Uh, it was a product of the development of mass newspapers, particularly in the United States, beginning in the 1880s. Uh, through to approximately 1910, most American supply came from the United States. They, were, they, they, they relied on their own for, force and the like. Uh, Canadian companies were effectively excluded from the American market by a series of protective tariffs, uh, which American producers 
push through with, with, with Washington. So even as the technology developed that would allow Canadian, uh, Canadian companies to develop, to, to expand, uh, they simply couldn't get access to, to the, the American market. Uh, all this began to change around 1910 as American force became depleted, but newspapers as an organization lobbied to have the tariffs removed, believing that they could then get cheaper supply from Canada. Uh, literally overnight in 1912, the tariffs were finally dropped, and this allowed a massive expansion of the Canadian of the Canadian industry, making pulp and paper within 15 years one of the largest industries in Canada. Uh, it was greeted literally with, as I may come back to, an investment mania. People just flooded into it the way they flooded into dot coms in the 1990s. Uh, for 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 example, the opportunities seemed unlimited. Uh, for, for companies because the demand just kept escalating and escalating. Uh, this being a print media era as opposed to our electronic, this was basically seen as the way in. So this un unleashed a massive expansion of the, Ameri uh, of the Canadian industry, but pulp itself as a commodity is highly volatile in pricing and demand. If you could just quickly describe for us what is pulp so that our audience will have a clear idea of what that substance is. Yeah, where, where you get paper from is you can use a variety of different, pro, different plant materials, everything from ca cabbages to papyrus. But when we talk about pulp, it's typically pine that has been cut up into very small little chips. It's then pulverized and chemically treated, uh, which turns it into a sort of a watery slurry, which you then run through a machine, you dry it out, and that's how you, eventually how you actually get paper. Uh, the early Canadian companies only produced pulp, uh, they didn't. They, they didn't have a market market for paper, but the reality is that pulp is about two thirds the cost of making something like newsprint. So it wasn't too far a jump economically for company companies to get into manufacturing paper. The difficulty was coming up with a production process that could turn out enough, fast enough and cheaply uh, to, to make it worthwhile. That unfolded between 1900 and 1910 as a whole series of innovations, sped up production, improved product quality, and consistency. Around 1921, there was a major recession, and what happened in it is many of the pulp companies in Canada suddenly collapsed. The biggest one was Riordan. Uh, Riordan was an absolutely giant company. It only made pulp. And a lesson the pulp producers took from that, that wave of failures in 1921 was that if they got into paper production, it was, it was hopefully a much more stable, constant market 
uh, you would typically be your plant would typically be producing for one or two newspaper chains. You could sell in volume. You're minimizing your cash flow problems. It looked like a fairly stable proposition. So, give us a thumbnail sketch then of the main subject of the book, uh, and that is the rise and fall of uh, Abitibi Power and Paper. Abitibi was founded in 1912 by Frank Harris Anson. He was an American, uh, came to Montreal, worked for Ogilvy Flour Mills, became very well connected in the, in the Montreal community, and he had invested in sugar refineries. Well, much of the economics of running a pulp and paper plant are, sim are act, as I discussed in the book, are actually quite similar to sugar operations and how those plants were both designed and, op and, and operated. Anson saw the re removal of American tariffs as a potential option. Uh, he was one of a number of entrepreneurs trying to develop pulp and pa paper operations, uh, but most of the one potential properties in Quebec were taken. So he began looking around and he was found that the Great Clay Belt up in northern Ontario had a large reserve of forests and it was at that time just being opened by the railways in both Ontario and coming out of Quebec. Uh, he put forward a proposal to a network of Toronto and Montreal business people uh, to set up a company. Uh, it was derided in the Montreal media as Anson's Folly. Nobody thought a pulp company that far north could succeed. But Anson was very well connected. And then he tied in with a man called Alexander Smith, who worked for Chicago Securities Company. Smith organized the financing, which dramatically expanded Abitibi's capabilities. And from 1914 to, to, to 1923, Abitibi operated as a stable, large-scale producer, one of the biggest in Canada, uh, from its mill in Iroquois Falls. But in 1923, Anson died. Alexander Smith took over, and he was a very different type of person. He was an empire builder. Uh, he began expanding Abitibi out in terms of a series of mergers that took took over other pulp and paper mills. He launched additional operations into other types of paper. But the most fateful decision was in 1927, he decided to merge Abitibi with Spanish power, power and paper. Spanish, as I discussed in the book, was one of the great disasters uh, during the, the first wave of expansion of the industry, but had been rebuilt. The terms of the merger, however, were not wise. With, with the merger, Smith was obliged to take Spanish at its nominal book value. Uh, whether it was actually worth that was an entirely separate question, which I probe in the book, showing it actually wasn't. Uh, then, they, But to make the deal work, they had to redo the corporate finances. The finances uh, ended up 
leaving Abitibi with a very heavy debt and preferred stock structure, uh, decreased the, the amount of common stock in, in the financial structure, uh, which was fine as long as the industry was going well. But about the time Abitibi did the merger, the industry, the price of newsprint began to drop, the industry began experiencing difficulties, and this set in motion a slow decline for the company, particularly with what became vicious cutthroat competition from 1928 to 32, which eventually pushed Abitibi into bankruptcy in June of 1932 in what became the longest and most complicated bankruptcy in Canadian history. Right, and and this is in the context of the collapse of the newsprint industry uh, writ large. Um, could uh, this insolvency or bankruptcy have been avoided um, for the industry as a whole and for Abby Tibby uh, in particular through better policies, or do you think the collapse was inevitable? I know from going through all the data that if, it, if the merger had not taken place, Abitibi probably would never have gone bankrupt in 1932. Uh, it, would have, it would have had a lot of trouble getting through the 1930s, but it would have succeeded. With respect to the industry, uh, it's, it's very, what happened was very complicated, and I'm dubious it could have been avoided. And let me briefly explain this. What happened with pulp and papers, in one sense, is very, very similar to most major industries in the period from 1890 to 1930. Namely, changes in technology allowed a massive expansion of production capabilities as companies realized new economies of scale. Uh, and in most industries, what happened is company, companies jumped to giant size, but there were usually only three or four companies, what we call in economics an oligopoly, that dominated the industry. Think of something like uh, automobiles. In pulp and paper, the same phenomenon occurred, but the capital requirements to build an economically efficient plant were nowhere as high as they were in things like automobiles, chemicals, or oil refining. The net result is you kept getting a flood of companies coming in, which instead of leaving the industry in the hands of a small oligopoly that could keep competition stable, they ended up in the hand with a fragmented industry where everybody was fighting tooth and claw for any piece of business that they could get their hands on. Now, as I talk about in the book, this is compounded by the fact that you also have an investment mania. People became convinced that pulp and paper was literally the, the new gold standard. It was going to be the great success story for the, for the 1920s. So you got a flood of capital coming in, uh, similar to what happened with the dot-coms in the 1990s, where people just thought, well, these companies can't fail. They're going, they're going to succeed. But add to it another issue, which comes off my teaching of corporate governance. The rules for financial disclosure and accountability 
were very limited in the 1920s. And, and one of the issues I talk about is how investors simply couldn't find out the real state of what was going on with a lot of the companies, given what they had to disclose at the time. We've seen this in other disasters uh, in our own generation, like Enron, for example, uh, or Eaton's, where there wasn't proper disclosure of what was going on, but it was far worse in the 1920s uh, in terms of the type of data that was presented. And we also didn't have a strong business media presence looking over and questioning what companies were doing. So... Um... One of the aspects of the insolvency of Abby Tibby and, and all of the legal proceedings that surrounded it, that as you pointed out in the book, it, it reminded me, and it obviously reminded you, of the never-ending case of Jarndyce versus Jarndyce and Charles Dickens' Bleak House, which you uh, uh, drew a parallel to. Uh, you refer to the deficiencies of Canadian law, both federal and Ontario law, in terms of insolvency and bankruptcies. Um, before you describe what some of these deficiencies were, who were the winners and losers in this drawn-out process, or were there any winners at all in this very long uh, insolvency process? Not really. Uh, most insolvencies last about two years. Uh, they, typ they typically have only a couple of uh, outcomes. If in minimal problems, companies are able to sell off some assets, restructure, and quickly get back, back, back to normal. Uh, more frequently, the company is taken over by somebody, uh, reorganized, restructured, and then into operation, but it's somebody else's business. And third, least frequently, uh, it's dissolved. Abitibi was literally a company too big to fail. At the time it went under, it was the largest manufacturing operation in Canada. Uh, the single largest Canadian-owned non-financial corporation. And what ensued was a 16-year receivership. One has to think about this. 16 years in bankruptcy courts, controlled by a receiver, uh, and the like. Were there winners? I have a hard time spotting anybody who's a winner out of, out of this. The bondholders eventually got their money, but it took them 16 years. The common shareholders claimed to win at the end, but they really got 10 cents on the dollar. And most of those back in 1932 were not the shareholders by the time the company went into receivership. Uh, most of the, uh, during the receivership, there was a heavy turnover of the stock on American markets. And basically what you had were a group of speculators in. And so whether they actually made money probably depended on exactly when they bought relative to what the price was. Uh, only a very small group of preferred shareholders came out as winners, and that's because under the terms of the federal law, uh, to get a final deal, they had to have uh, approval by each investor class. Well, this small group, uh, headed by a New York security dealer, realized they could green mail everybody else and make money. Most of the politicians who were involved with Abitibi across its history 
had their reputations blackened either by the, the directly by the failure itself by what unfolded afterwards, such as the need of the, the provincial government to take over the Abitibi Canyon Hydro Complex, uh, which Abitibi had built just before it went bankrupt, uh, or by their own dealings in the pulp and paper industry. I suppose if you're looking from a political perspective, the only person who came out looking good was Premier George Drew in the 1940s, uh, because the, the resuscitation of the company occurred when he was premier, but also because he began a process of depoliticizing forestry operations in the province, uh, which became standard practice. Difficulties, of course, would occur later with, with other companies, but never at the scale of what unfolded prior to 1940, where, as I talk in the book, resource, resource development was really more a synonym for resource exploitation, where most politicians were using pulp and paper and forestry as a political tool to help them get votes, pay off contractors, uh, and the like, and in some cases, out outright payoffs to some of the politicians. Tell us a little bit about the primary sources that you use to reconstruct the history of Abitibi and the newsprint industry in Canada more generally, because you really did use a, a huge variety of sources, uh, and some of them are fairly unique in terms of how business histories are generally written. One of the problems I ran into right from the beginning was that when Abitibi came out of receivership, the receiver burnt most of the documents with the company. Abitibi itself wasn't interested in anybody doing a study of its early history. Hardly a surprise. Companies don't like to be reminded of problems in the past. Uh, I was working at the Ontario Archives in Toronto, initially going through well-known things like the Premier's Papers, where I found Abitibi materials, which the premiers had dealt with. Uh, but as part of the research I was looking at, I was began going through a variety of court records, in part because I was trying to see, collect data concurrently about bankruptcies, insolvencies, and how widespread they were. Well, as I was digging through the court records, I had one of those little things that historians dream about. There was an entry buried in the Supreme Court minute book about three boxes. Now, normally all you ever find uh, on a bankruptcy is a couple affidavits in the original petition, uh, you know, one small little file. Uh, with the help of the staff at Ontario Archives, we managed to get the materials, which were in an old warehouse. They were covered over in coal dust. They had been put there had never opened. Uh, so I was looking at stuff that only the judge and the receiver had ever seen. This is stuff that normally is destroyed after a bankruptcy. On the basis of that, I then began sending out letters, particularly to a variety of companies that were involved with the bankruptcy, who sat on the bondholders' council, for example. Uh, the best one was Mutual Life of Canada and Waterloo, which is now controlled by Sun Life. It turned out they had 
a mint complete version of the bondholder correspondence sitting in their records. And I was probably only the second person after the chief executive officer of Mutual to ever read the documents. Uh, you could literally see his fingerprints on it. Uh, from there, I began radiating outwards. I began went to obvious things like newspapers and journals, but I kept sending out letters to different places that might have it. Uh, I found at Yale University, there were a lot of Abbott Tibby brochures and records related to the merger that nobody had ever had, had seen. Again, these were things which were, would normally be destroyed because nobody would be interested in them after the fact. And then in the Sault Ste. Marie Public Library, I found a set of accounting records that explained how they did the financial data at the time of the merger. And again, this is something that usually never, ever survives. Uh, the receiver destroyed the originals, but there was enough at Sault Ste. Marie for me to put together roughly how they did it with the help of a couple of my accounting colleagues. So tell us, what contribution do you think this book makes in terms of historiography in general and Canadian business history in particular? What I wanted to do was write a holistic study, not, not a very narrow study, but one that really showed how a, bank, a company failure actually occurs. Uh, with Abitibi, I had the luxury of a rich data source that, is nor that are normally closed off to people. When, we do, when, the when a company goes bankrupt, the media usually, as I phrase it in the book, it's a bit like Clue. They've got Miss Scarlet in the dining room with the candlestick, but it typically comes down to something like exe executive incompetence or corporate greed. In fact, as a professional consultant as well as an academic, ba bankruptcy and failure of giant corporations is complicated. You basically have a background of a business environment, the nature of the laws, uh, regulatory regimes, et cetera, that influence the context in which the company developed. Then there's what we cover in courses on strategic management, which is how is an industry actually structured how, do, how is a business defined? How does a company within that context set its strategic profile? And particularly, how does the industry change, either forcing the company to adapt and change, it, change its competitive profile or ultimately fail? And then at the final level, which you usually don't see in the media, is the detailed stuff from inside the firm how it's financed, how it does its marketing, how it's organizationally structured. Now that's crucial when you're looking at it as a business prof, uh, because that usually explains what goes on. Most companies, if they succeed, develop very stable strategic profiles, which they will not touch or run, alter significantly for anywhere from 10 to 25 years uh, because it's hard for a giant company to build up a clean-cut strategic profile. What always happens is at some point the business environment changes, competitors figure out new approaches, and the company enters a crisis. Wise companies with, pardon me, good companies with wise managers or new managers 
figure out how to get around that, and they go on. The bulk companies, I would argue, ultimately go into a slow decline and fail. Um, companies, uh, what I wanted to show in the book first was how this actually occurred. In this case, not just a, it turned out not to just be a company, but an industry. The other part, which I do want to stress, is that the back half of the book does something that you won't find in it, any other study uh, in Canada and only a couple studies in the United States. It takes the reader behind closed doors to show what happens with the lawyers, the, the judges, the government, when a company does fail. And both the rational plans and the machinations that unfold as they try to either restructure the company, get their money, get their money out, or get whatever they can from it. And I think that is uh, an absolutely amazing contribution and something which has obviously very contemporary relevance. So, what are some of the contemporary? Uh, business as well as policy lessons that we can draw from your study? Although it's set a century ago, the harsh reality is most of the major issues behind Abitibi's failure are similar to the mega-mergers and disasters of our own era. Uh, one of the, one of the bi major themes which I do stress, which I stress in the book, is the idea that, well, being bigger is better. You got to build the company. You got to merge it. Uh, mergers, even under the best of conditions, can take five to 15 years before the gains are really realized. What happened with Abitibi and the pulp and paper companies is they didn't have long enough from the, the mergers and growth they experienced in the 1920s to, to, get, to reap the full gains. I talk a fair amount about the problems of financial structures particularly reliance on debt and preferred stock uh, as an issue, which is, again, very similar to some of the major mergers. I think, I think particularly of the Time Warner AOL merger in 2000, uh, which everybody praised when it first came through, and then the whole operation went into a tailspin within 36 months uh, as an issue. Uh, I would also stress that uh, I'm a critic of those who like to ballyhoo corporate leadership. Uh, I'm a firm believer that you have to look very carefully and step away from the public relations rhetoric about how companies are succeeding and brilliant. You're only as good as your next act. Uh, you don't know how, how it's going to, and you don't know how it's going to come out. Abitibi would go, ironically, go through the same thing all over again in the early 2000s, but in 2009, uh, it finally went completely under after a merger with Bullwaters, and which meant that Anson's Folly ended up as Bullwaters' blunder. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My guest today was Barry E.C. Boothman. He is the author of Corporate Cataclysm, 
Abby Tibby Power and Paper and the Collapse of the Newsprint Industry, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on January 11th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.